I have a client who is a large beauty advertiser. They've got about 30 or 40 black brands globally. Uh, 80% of their revenue comes from retailers and the remaining 20% before the pandemic came from direct to consumer. So many of you can probably relate to this type of client. Um, before the pandemic, they were making the vast majority of their revenue and growth from China. They were seeing explosive growth uh, out of Asia, but China specifically. And in February 2020, my client came to me and said, Sam, we're screwed. And I said, why? Um, well, this pandemic, this pandemic that we're seeing in China has crushed our sales. All of our retailers are now closed. And we don't have a way to make money. Um, and so I said, okay, but it's just in China, so we're okay. And they said, no, it's coming to Europe, and it will soon be in the U.S. And I'm sure many of you can relate to this panic, because what do we do? Nobody's putting on lipstick anymore. Nobody's leaving their house, and Sephora is closed, Macy's is closed, and everybody in between all around the world. And so there was a lot at stake for this specific client. And again, I'm sure there was a lot at stake for many of you as well. And they said, we need Google's help to figure out what we're going to do. How are we going to fix this? And they were really concerned, not just for their shareholders and not just for their lines of business, but for their jobs. Because at the end of the day, when sales shrink, so does headcount and things can get pretty dramatic. Now, the good news is um, we came in as early as we could, and we had this old statistic from McKinsey that we worked on a research paper together. And what they said was, and you'll see it on the slide in a second, CPG companies with a solid foundation can deliver 3 to 5% growth in net sales and improve their marketing efficiency by 10 to 20%. So I'll let that sink in for a second. Three to 5% net sales growth in a billion dollar business is huge. If you have the right data foundation in place, if you know where your data is, if you know how to use it. And so today, I'm gonna share with you the three lessons that we learned over the course of, the, of these 18 months. I can't believe it's been 18 months <laughs> in this pandemic. Um, and share with you all just a couple of the highlights through this journey and where you can expect to learn going forward. So the first thing we learned is you cannot let your greatest asset remain unused. And your greatest asset is the data that you have about your consumers, about your brands, and about your company. You need to put your data to work. The second thing that we learned is you have to set the right metrics. When we were working with this company, and I'll share it in a little bit, every brand had a different KPI for what success looked like in their campaign. So some would say, I had the best campaign ever because my view-through rate was X. And others would say, I had the best. Oh, that's okay. I love the sound of my voice. <laughs> um, there was a lot of confusion about what success looks like. And as you can imagine, if you don't know what's good or what's bad, it's difficult to iterate on that or shut something down. And the third thing that we learned that I'll get into a bit more is failing fast is critical. 
We've seen an unprecedented amount of change and just heard that from the future hunters as well. Um, if you can't learn and test and fail as fast as the market is moving, then you're already behind. And so we'll talk today about some of the lessons we've learned there as well to really test, learn, and innovate at the speed and pace of this global pandemic. So when we were working with this client, we did a little bit of research. And what we found now in 2021 is that this client saw a 4% increase in, Euro, in, in sales from 2019 in 18 months of a pandemic. So if you remember the quote I just shared with you or the research that you can see an increase of three to 5% net sales by organizing your data and using it to your advantage, this, this client hit dead center on 4%. So we were thrilled to see that number just a few months ago. And that's why I'm spilling the beans now to tell you that this works. This methodology, methodology I'm sharing with you works and it works at a scale of a billion dollar company with 30 brands and hundreds of markets and millions of consumers. So let's talk about putting your data to work. I'm gonna say it again, put your data to work. <laughs> the frustration of data is incredible. I don't know how many of you are like me. I mean, I work at Google, our mission is to organize the world's information and I can't tell you how many times I get a spreadsheet with the wrong number or something that doesn't line up and it's like nerve wracking. You can spend a week and I'm sure many of you can relate to this going back and forth, version three, version four, this number's wrong, that number's up, that number's down. And it's crazy. Um, we ran a study to find out how many people are using data in their day-to-day -day decisions. So we interviewed about 400 people, um, mid-level managing three or four people. So they're managing up and down and across their own organizations and a, a fairly large PL. And of all the people that we interviewed, the average number of times they were using data to make a decision was about 6%. So 94% of the time they were using their guts. <laughs> Which, you know, you laugh, but maybe if you think about it in your own organization or your own business, like how often are you, are you looking at the numbers versus looking at the trends on Instagram or what you're seeing in the press or what you're reading in Forbes or whatever it is? You've got to look at your own data and validate it against what you're hearing and seeing in the marketplace to really extract that value. And the second piece of the research that we found, which was fascinating, is that for those employees that are using more than 50% of the data they have at their fingertips, you stand to make $55,000 more in revenue per year per employee. $55,000. What would you do with $55,000 added to your budget in a quarter, in a year? And how many employees do you have? I mean, that, that number can really fly um, if they're using data to make decisions. Now, this was not easy for this client. It was, it was really a rough go. Um, the first thing that we ran into was the data silos that existed. So there was a lot of challenges we had with permissions across the organization, who could access what information and when and how, right? So some people sitting at their desk didn't have, didn't have data about all of their consumers, about what they were buying in stores. They only had the online data and other teams only have the offline sales data. 
and other teams had the PR data and the inventory data, and it was like no one could really piece together what was going on. So the first thing we decided to do was default to open. We do this at Google as well. To the extent possible, everybody has access to everything that they need to make a decision. So there's no more, I've got to get this approval here or that or wherever. Start by opening up the gates a little bit to the extent that it's like privacy safe and compliant, of course, but start open and then start to scale back if you need to because certain things are too private or too sensitive to be shared across. But default to open. The second thing that we learned was that there was a lack of resources. So I know uh, we were just talking about like time being the number one thing, but probably the second thing you would have pointed to is resources, right? So people to help you. And I remember my client saying to me, Sam, I can't hire like 30 data scientists in the middle of a pandemic. And I was like, don't hire anybody. You don't need to hire data scientists. You don't need to hire a bunch of people to figure this out. Start with what you have. And what I would encourage you all to do is start with the partnerships that you've built with companies like Facebook, Google, and Amazon. At Google, we've got built-in artificial intelligence and machine learning into our apps products and into all the reporting platforms so that you don't have to go out and buy a bunch of expensive technology and figure out how to use it and hire a bunch of data scientists. In real time, our reporting will automatically show you what's important, where you need to optimize, and where you need to go next. And that takes a huge load off, right? Because there's no more investment. There's no extra overhead. It's just using the tools that are available to you. And the third piece that we learned was the consumer privacy which we'll talk about on our panel in a little bit. Um, consumers have a lot of really high expectations. I think you all have a lot of high expectations as well. You're no longer probably giving your email address to anybody you ask for. And so what we'll talk about is, and what we talked about with this client was, how do we create an equal and even value exchange? So if I'm gonna give you my email address, what am I gonna get in return? A bunch of annoying emails? Or am I going to get free shipping? Am I going to get a free sample? Am I going to get a cool virtual try-on experience, an app? Those are the types of things that will incentivize you as humans, because I know we're marketers, but we're humans as well, <laughs> to give over our information and then get some value back from you, because they want more, and they deserve more. So the second thing we learned, and this is my favorite because I'm a bit of a nerd myself, um, is setting the right metrics. And I'm going to talk to you all a little bit about customer lifetime value. So if I were to ask you now, what are the most important characteristic of, characteristics of the top 20% of your customers? Could you answer it? Maybe some, maybe not. Um, our, my client couldn't really answer this. They couldn't answer it across a portfolio of brands, not within one brand. Maybe there were a couple where they had some ideas. But this is what you really need to focus on, is what is the value of my top 20%? What are they seeking? So if we're in the middle of a pandemic and they're still buying your lipstick, why are they buying? Is it because they're actually bloggers or influencers? Is it because they live in a certain area where things are trying to open? Is it because they like the promotions that you're sending them? You have to understand what are the different drivers of that customer lifetime value? 
And what gets really exciting is once you figure out the top 20%, you can go to the next 20% and the next and the next. And you can layer on to understand, okay, my top 20%, they're going to buy my stuff regardless. I mean, they survived the pandemic with me and they're going to keep on going. So I'm actually not going to spend as much money on them. I'm not going to buy as much media for them. I'm not going to target them as much. But this middle 20% is interesting to me because they haven't bought something from me in a year. But a year ago, they were spending about $1,000 a year. So what's going on with them? Maybe I have to change the way in which they interact with me on my website. Maybe I have to change the offers I'm giving them. Maybe I should send them a survey. I don't know. Different things you can start to think about and test and learn to see what's happening in that middle that I can use to kind of flip them to my top 20. And then, you know, it becomes a flywheel where you're investing in the bottom half to get everybody up to the top. So the third thing that we were working through with this client was test and learn and test and learn and fail and test and learn. What's really interesting, I'm sure many of you can relate to this, my 87-year-old grandmother joined a Zoom call for a family birthday. She unmuted herself, muted herself, and had her camera showing. I was like, this is is wild. (laughs) Um, And I'm sure many of you can relate to that. I mean, technology has evolved so fast in these past 18 months, and humans are just trying to keep up. And what this graph shows here is that Technology has actually evolved way faster than we can really adapt to it. And so it's when technology went like this. Humans, we kind of stayed the same. We got a little sharper. Like my grandma figured out Zoom, but she's still not an expert. And so it's up to you as marketers to help bridge that gap. How are you helping your employees catch up, right? How are you empowering them with the right tools and the right resources and the right psychological safety to test, learn, and fail? to meet that technology learning curve. And the brands who can do that will see incredible success, as as I'll share in a moment. Now, when we did this with the client I was just sharing, there were three things that were really challenging. The first thing they did when the pandemic happened was they cut all budgets, which means they cut all testing, all learning, so there was like nothing happening. And we were like, okay, we gotta get some of that back so that we can figure out what's working and what's not. That was one of the first big hurdles that we had to kind of climb over. The second was that failing fast was not really encouraged. Um, Failing is a little bit scary when you're in the middle of a pandemic and your sales are down. You don't want to fail because if you fail, maybe something worse will happen and sales will even go further down. So there was this real big apprehension towards testing, learning, and failing, which made it kind of challenging to, to advance. And the third piece here was that there was no like infrastructure, like a dashboard or something that would show all of the brands around the world, hey, I just ran this really cool pilot and it worked. You know, I I drove X amount of sales, try it, it's going to work for you too. There was no like sharing across the organization of things that were working and also things that were failing. I was so surprised when I first joined Google and I got this email that was like, we failed. And I was like, I've never seen an email come like that to thousands of people. But there's this real celebratory aspect to it of like, this didn't work. This was a wildly unsuccessful project. Here's what we learned so that you don't do it too. And that's the type of 
thinking and logic we were trying to instill in this time as well so they could advance forward. Now, the three things that we did to solve for this were really incentivizing learning. We asked all the brands to just put like 1% of the budget of every campaign you're running towards testing something new. Maybe even less, depending on the size of the budget of the campaign. Like $500 towards something that you're trying that's new, so we can figure out if that will work and then scale it across. The second thing that we asked them to do was to evolve their KPIs a little bit more. So create a standard of global, local, and regional KPIs that are rooted in driving customer lifetime value. And then play with those a little bit, like I was saying before. So if you, know, you want to maybe change the website experience for your top 20% and see if that changes sales. Or give an offer to a control, uh, and do a control and expose study and give an offer to someone uh, in your top 20% and not to the other. How are they reacting differently? That type of thinking and really just setting that in motion hugely helps so they could actually define what was working and what was not working in a more real-time capacity. And then finally, I asked them to just consolidate a little bit. So we created like one master dashboard of all the campaign results and the three KPIs that we care about globally instead of what before was just a million spreadsheets and presentations and different things and disparate locations that was really like hard to understand what was rising, what was falling, and what was staying stagnant. And that was hugely helpful in sort of moving us forward and getting those big wins. Now, I also shared this, and it should come up on your screens in a second. In 2020, Google tested Google Search 600,000 times with minor little tweaks. So we did 600,000 test and learn cycles to get to more efficiency, more effectiveness on our own platform. And Google search is obviously our, our biggest product um, and our most consumer facing. And so I'm not saying you have to go home and do 600,000 tests with your brands, but I wanted to show that there's really no ceiling. And that your biggest product or your biggest brand is probably the one that you want to do the most amount of testing with because that is your moneymaker. And so how are you going to keep pushing them, keep innovating them, and rolling them forward, just like we're doing with our own Google search? So I have three takeaways for you before I go. Um, the first is put your data to work. Put your data to work. It will reap the benefits that you are expecting it to. And in, in this client's case, they got saw a 4% increase in net sales on a billion dollar business. And it was significant. So put your data to work. The second piece is evolve your KPIs and revolve everything you do around customer lifetime value. If you couldn't answer that question earlier about the characteristics of your 20%, your top 20% of customers, that's your homework. Go home and start to figure that out and start there. And then the third is test and learn and fail and test and learn and have fun while you're doing it. I am so optimistic about the beauty industry. I, I love it myself. I love all the skincare routines. I love all the products. I love coming here and meeting all of you and hearing what you're working on. 
there's such a huge upside potential as we come back to normal, specifically in the beauty space, and I'm excited to see what you all come up with. My name is Sam Mintz. Thank you so much for your time, and I'm looking forward to getting to know you a little bit later today. Thank you.